Will you pray with me? Jesus, um, thank you for who you are, what you've done. Thank you for your life and your, your perfection, your death, your resurrection, and the salvation that you offer. Thank you for your church and um, allowing us to gather and call out to you and sing to you and worship you. Help us to see in this moment um, how alive your word is. And I pray for um, ears to hear and hearts to receive and the courage to respond. Uh, draw us to you in this moment. We're desperate for you more than we ever realize. We are desperate for you. We love you. Thank you for loving us first and for loving us way more. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. <clears throat> Today's passage is from John chapter 7, verses 1 through 24. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea that your disciples may or also may see the works that you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to... Uh, to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, he then also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If, anyone, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Uh, at this point, I wanted to dismiss CP Kids. Uh, you are free to go to the back and see the party people. Uh, they are there, ready and waiting. Um, have a couple of pictures, update on the Honduras team. 
uh, they, hopefully the first picture you're seeing, I've been told when you're up here you're not supposed to turn and look because it gets weird, okay, so I'm just going to pretend. Um, the first picture is them at the airport at like 4.30 in the morning, okay, they look alive, they look ready, uh, and I'm jealous that I'm not with them. Uh, the second picture is them unloading in Honduras, and there are no sky caps there. There are no, there are no, no people to come out and get no bellhops. I mean, you got to get on there and and figure out what luggage is yours. Um, so I'm I just see those pictures, and I'm so I've already been in texting with James and Phil, and uh, I wish I was there. Um, somebody else that's there is Jill Lejeune with two of her boys. Um, and they are going to miss their uh, Jill's going to miss her husband, and the boys are going to miss their dad preaching today. Russ Lejeune, um, who is here this morning with his other half dozen kids, um, and so um, this this is awesome. Um, Russ and his family have been a part of the CP family for many years now. Uh, Russ has served both in our men's ministry and in the gathering that meets uh, every Sunday at 9 a.m. over at the chapel. Russ is a student of God's word, and I love that about him. Uh, you're gonna, you're gonna love that about him as well. Um, and he's married to Jill, his much better half, who's so cool, uh, and he is not. But that makes him cool because she is cool. Uh, and he's raising five boys and doing it really well. So I, I am thrilled to bring uh, or invite Russ to come up um, as he speaks today. coming through. All right. Thanks, Matt. Uh, good morning, church family. Just give me one second here. So this is a long text. Um, so bear with me because uh, it's, uh, it's a really, really interesting scripture. Uh, again, Billy, as Billy uh Introduce. My name is Russ. Uh, my family has been coming to Christ Point for over seven years now, uh, which is which is pretty pretty amazing. Um, and and like you said, I teach the gathering hour over at at the chapel. Um, we've been going through the prophets for the last uh, year and a half, and it has been really fun. And so I invite you all, uh, if you are here on a Sunday morning at nine, um, we're on hiatus for the summer, but we'll be back after Labor Day. So uh, if you'd ever want to join. Uh, we'll be over at the chapel, 9 a.m. Uh, look for that announcement. Uh, this morning, uh, we're back in the book of John, chapter 7. Uh, a little context before we dive in. If you remember, uh, a couple of significant events happened just before this in chapters 5 and 6. First, in chapter 5, Jesus heals the lame man at the pool of Bethesda. In chapter 6, he feeds the 5,000 and walks on water. Now, here we are in chapter 7. Jesus is hanging out in Galilee, which is north of Jerusalem. And it says here at the top of this text that the Feast of Booths was at hand. The Feast of Booths was one of seven feasts or festivals ordained by God that the Jewish people were to celebrate every year. Furthermore, the Feast of Booths was one of three pilgrim feasts, meaning that the Jewish people were required to travel to Jerusalem for the feast in order to present their tithes and their sacrifices to God. The Feast of Booths was also known as the Feast of Tabernacles, and was ordained by God after God delivered his people out of Egypt. It was an eight-day feast. Uh, it started with a Sabbath day, and 
a Sabbath day of rest and ended on a Sabbath day of rest. In between those Sabbath days, the Jewish people were to live in makeshift shelters built out of sticks and palms, which were to remind them of the 40 years that they wandered in the wilderness. While they were wandering, they were looking forward to the promised land, but they were living in these temporary shelters, fully reliant on God's provision and protection. The Feast of Booths also represents um, a broader story of the Bible and of human history. So we saw in Genesis um, God's rest from his work of creation uh, and his perfect fellowship with Adam and Eve in the garden um, before the fall. And we read at the end of Revelation that there will be again a rest and a fellowship with God in a garden in the new heavens and the new earth. And the rest of human history from the fall until Jesus' second coming represents our time in the wilderness, here and now, living in temporary shelters. Temporary, not only that this world is temporary, this fallen world, but also that these bodies, right, are not our glorified bodies. And so we see that God establishes these feasts in order to remind his people of all that he has done for them, They also represent the broader story of the Bible. And thirdly, they foreshadow the finished work of Jesus, who through his life, death, and resurrection brings his people out of the wilderness into the promised land where we will Sabbath with him forever. All right, so that's the context. Let's jump into John chapter 1, verse verse 1. The verse that stood out to me from this text was the last verse. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. What does Jesus mean by this? Not to judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. The word appearances seems pretty clear. It's what's visible to the eye, how something looks outwardly. The word right in this verse is better understood as righteous or righteousness. So we can also read this verse as don't judge by appearances, but judge with righteousness. I like this better because the word righteousness immediately reminds me of God, who is the righteous one. As irrational and emotional English-speaking humans, we have a tendency to find the word right based on how we feel. We see this in Proverbs 21.2. Every man's way is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. So to know if something is righteous, we need to look for the truth outside of ourselves. As Paul says in Philippians 3, For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So, in order to know what is righteous and what righteousness is and what righteous judgment looks like, we must look to God and what he says is right and good and just. And what exactly are we to be judging righteously? Well, in this text, we are being asked to judge whether or not the claims about God, about his word, or about the application of his word are true. Simply put, whether the teachers and preachers of God's law are being faithful and true to God's word. So I would like to look at three examples this morning of how to judge rightly and not by appearances. The first example is judging by the appearance of righteousness. The second is judging by the appearance of fame. And the third, judging by the appearance of knowledge. Our first example, judging by the appearance of righteousness. Have you ever followed someone on Facebook or Instagram and thought, man, they have the perfect life? You see pictures of them doing amazing things, traveling, eating beautifully prepared food, 
hanging out with their perfect family and friends. But you spend a week with those same people, and you'll soon see that nobody's life is perfect. The algorithms behind those social media platforms curate our feeds so that we see, or what we see, has the appearance of perfection. But in fact, that is not the truth. So let's look here at verse 1. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Do you remember why the Jews were seeking to kill Jesus? Back in April, Pastor James preached on John chapter 5, where Jesus healed the lame man at the pool of Bethesda on the Sabbath. We saw that the reason the Jewish leaders were out to kill Jesus was because, one, he healed a man on the Sabbath, and two, was making himself equal with God. Pastor James did a thorough job in that sermon showing how the Jewish leaders added to God's law regarding to the Sabbath. For example, they claimed picking up your mat was a form of work and therefore forbidden to do on the Sabbath day of rest. They also claimed that healing was a form of work and also forbidden to do on the Sabbath day of rest. This brought them into direct confrontation with Jesus, who both healed a man and told him to pick up his mat on the Sabbath. Jesus would often admonish the Pharisees for their misinterpretation and misapplication of God's law. Pastor James showed us that the Pharisees cared more about being right than about the lame man being healed by the Son of God. Much like our social media feeds, the Pharisees had a history of displaying a false righteousness, which we see all throughout the New Testament. In Luke 18, Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And again, in Matthew 5, 17 through 20, during Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. In these two passages, we see clearly that the righteousness that, that is based on showing off your good works or exhibiting a self-congratulating Law-keeping is a false righteousness, a self-righteousness. But to outsiders, it may have the appearance of righteousness. It's interesting how the Pharisees uh, were arguing about interpretation and application of God's law with Jesus, who is literally the author of that law. It's pretty wild. It's also interesting that the Pharisees, the same folks who claimed to be the beacon of righteousness, were so quick to jump to try to murder anyone who opposed them. The level of hatred towards Jesus, the Son of God in the flesh, the creator of all things, for the crime of healing a man on the Sabbath is pretty telling. It strikes me as extreme and perhaps a warning sign not to trust these guys too much. And that's just what Jesus is exhorting his listeners to do. 
not to judge people by appearances, but judge with righteous judgment. Do we believe the guy who says, do not pick up your mat, or do not heal of the sick man? Or do we believe the author and creator of all things? Unfortunately, it's not that simple, as until we were born again and filled with the Holy Spirit, we're really no different than the Pharisees. As Isaiah says in chapter 64, we have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. Until God opened our eyes and gave us a new heart through the free gift of salvation, we were no different than the Pharisees. Not being able to judge righteously because we had no understanding of what righteousness was. Paul says it clearly in Ephesians 4, Now I say this, now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their mind. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of their ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But this is not the way you learned Christ. So how do we know if we're judging rightly as Christ commands? Let's look at what Jesus says in chapter 5, starting in verse 19. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one but gives, has given all judgment to the Son, that they all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. So the key text is right here in verse 23. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. In order to judge rightly and not by appearances, whether someone is making true claims about God, about his word, or about the application of his word, it comes down to this. Do they honor Jesus? And do they glorify God? And what does it look like to honor Jesus and glorify God? Right here in verse 24 are two ways to honor Jesus. Listen to his words, believe in God, and believe in Jesus. I'll add one more verse that should pretty much cover everything else. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Whether you, then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. So in order to judge righteously and not by appearances, Ask yourself, is this person honoring Jesus in what they are saying? Are they being faithful to God, what God's word says? And three, are they living a life that is glorifying to God? This is what Jesus is exhorting his listeners to do with regards to trusting teachers and preachers of God's word. All right, example number two, judging by the appearance of fame. Let's continue with the verses two through seven. Now, the Jews' feast of booze was at hand, so his brother said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. And Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify about it that its works are evil. The second example here is the appearance of fame. What really stood out to me in this text was the verse, for not even his brothers believed in him. 
We've already seen that at this juncture in Jesus' ministry, many of his disciples had departed and no longer walked with him. In John chapter 6, the previous chapter, after feeding the 5,000 and walking on water, many of his disciples left because of the hard sayings involving eating Jesus' flesh and drinking his blood. And now here in John 7, fairly late into Jesus' earthly ministry, we see Jesus' own brothers do not even believe in him. After growing up with him, following his ministry closely, witnessing many of his miracles, Jesus' own brothers still do not believe in him. Think about that for a moment. How lonely and isolating it must have felt to have those closest to you not believe in you after all these years. It gives us some perspective on how hard and lonely Jesus' ministry was. You can't deny Jesus' humanity. He feels what we feel, and that includes loneliness and rejection. And in spite of all that, Jesus perfectly fulfilled the law, faithfully performed God's will, and successfully accomplished the saving work of dying on the cross for for the sins of the world. But it may have been tempting for Jesus to take his brothers up on their suggestion. Here's what they say in verse 3. Leave here, go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. It's as if Jesus' brothers were his self-appointed campaign managers. What was wrong with their thinking, though? What assumptions were they making about success and what it should look like? They believed success meant Jesus drawing huge crowds and gaining lots of followers. So it would have been discouraging and disheartening for Jesus' brothers to have seen a great number of Jesus' disciples walk away like they did in chapter 6. This may be why you can kind of get a sense or a hint of indignation in Jesus' brothers' words. Why even have the power to perform miracles like mass-producing food out of thin air if there's no one to feed? Furthermore, for Jesus to be hanging out in Galilee in the wilderness, away from Jerusalem, the capital city of Israel, made no sense to them. How can, you, how can Jesus become king and Messiah if he is not going to go to where the people are and do these amazing works in the capital city? It's because his brothers believe that the appearance of large crowds, fame, popularity, and attention, all the measures of worldly success, were necessary in order for Jesus to become the Messiah. They judged success by the appearance of fame, And we do this as well. How often have we seen megachurches with large congregations, I'm talking tens of thousands of people, be lifted up as a beacon of success in the visible church? Yet when you listen to what's being preached in some of those churches, it's nothing but life tips, pop psychology, completely devoid of biblical truth. How many famous pastors have you seen fall away or been exposed of committing some grievous sin unworthy of the office of pastor? How much Christian contemporary music on the radio is popular, positive, and encouraging, but the entire focus of the song is on me and my life and not on Jesus and his? Now, I want to caveat right, by saying there are many good biblical megachurches out there that serve Jesus faithfully. And there are many good famous pastors out there that are faithfully doing the good work of shepherding their congregations. And there are some good contemporary Christian songs on the radio, (laughs) though they may not be the popular ones. I still listen to Skillet, so I might be just getting old. (laughs) So how do we know if we are judging rightly or if we're being taken in by the appearance of fame and worldly success? The answer is right here in verse 6 and 7. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come. 
but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. If a church pastor or teacher proclaims God's word faithfully, then the world will hate them, just like the world hated Jesus. This, to our 21st century American Christian ears, is a hard saying. We do not like being hated. No one wants to follow someone who's unpopular. No one likes to be called names or to be seen as unkind or to even get canceled. But this is how we will know if what we are hearing or what is being taught by God is true. Is the message loved or hated by the world? And what is this message that the world hates? What is it that Jesus testifies about it? Jesus says right here in verse 7 that its works are evil. The world thinks it is good in God's eyes, but God's word says otherwise. In John 3.19, it says, This is the judgment, that light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light, lest his works should be exposed. And James 4.4 says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. The testimony of Jesus is that the works of the world are evil, not a popular message. But what about the gospel? I thought the gospel meant good news. The gospel is good news, but it's only good news because there is bad news. And in respect to the gospel, the bad news comes first. So if I said something like, Jesus loves you and has a great plan for your life, it's true, but no one would be offended by that statement. Even if you don't believe in Jesus, you might politely say, that's nice. And if I only stuck to that message, I might even gain a following. But if I said something like, you are a sinner whose works are evil and are under God's wrath, and without faith in Jesus Christ, you are destined for hell in the lake of fire for all eternity. I would definitely lose some friends, maybe even some family. People would probably start to hate me. And after a while, some people may want me dead. Now, I believe in bold, honest preaching, but if you walked up to someone and said that verbatim, it would be difficult. And I feel without some sort of relationship with that person or a move of the Holy Spirit, it would certainly be received poorly. But no, how, no matter how tactful or winsome we are in sharing the gospel message, the message is still the same. People need to hear that they are sinners under God's wrath. And unless they repent and believe and trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins, they are destined for hell. The gospel isn't good news without the bad news. And no one likes bad news. In truth, the world hates the truth of God's word. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And Hebrews 11 says, And without faith it is impossible to please God. These are not popular feel-good verses, but they are necessary verses. This is the testimony of Jesus. And in preaching the full counsel of God's word, we cannot ignore them. Without the bad news, there is no good news. And faithful teachers and preachers do not shy away from the hard sayings of Scripture. So, in order to judge rightly and not by appearances whether the word of God and the gospel is being preached faithfully, ask yourself this. Is the full counsel of God being preached? Are the hard sayings of the Bible being proclaimed along with the good news? Is what is being preached a message the world would celebrate or hate? This is what Jesus is exhorting his brothers to understand. That Jesus won't become king and Messiah through winning over the people and gaining in popularity. 
that even performing miracles like healing the sick, feeding the thousands, raising people from the dead, will not overcome the hatred towards him for testifying that the world's works are evil. Success for Jesus will not result from fame and a large following. In fact, it will lead to the opposite, him being despised and alone and crucified on a cross. Last example, judging by the appearance of knowledge. Let's look at verse 8 through 18. You go up to the feast, I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee, but his brothers had gone up to the feast, and then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. Real quick, I want to address this text. Did Jesus just lie to his disciples in saying that he was not going to this feast, but then he went up in secret? This is a claim by some people that the Bible is full of contradictions. How could Jesus be perfect if he lied about not going to the feast? Jesus did not deceive his disciples or lie to them. This is simply a matter of understanding proper grammar. Simply put, when Jesus said, I am not going up to this feast, grammatically he's saying that in the present tense. Meaning, what he is saying is, he's not going up to the feast right then and there in that moment. It's the same thing as Jesus saying, I'm not going up to the feast right now. If you're in such a hurry, you go. Furthermore, Jesus, it says Jesus went up privately and not publicly. During these festivals, people from all over Judea would travel together in large processions or caravans for safety as well as for company, as these feasts were a time of celebration. So in effect, Jesus traveled by himself so as not to show up in a large procession and draw attention to himself. Another way of saying it would be he went up privately to the feast. And why is he saying he's not going up at that moment? Jesus explains here in verse 8, because his time has not yet fully come. What does that mean? You see this phrase throughout the Gospels repeated, Jesus says it at the wedding at Cana in John 2 in response to his mother's request to do something about the wine. He says, my hour has not yet come, but immediately after performs the miracle of turning water into wine. And we'll see it again in John 7, verse 30, where he says, the Pharisees were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. This statement foreshadows that it's not the right time for the following two things. One, Jesus to reveal himself to the world as Messiah, and secondly, Jesus revealing the time and occasion of his death. Jesus, ma Jesus manages the momentum of his ministry so that things would happen according to God's timing and not according to the will and whims of the people. Needless to say, this meaning was lost on his brothers. In light of the conversations with his brothers of them wanting Jesus to appear publicly in order to gain attention and Jesus revealing it was not yet his time, it makes sense that Jesus would not want to travel with them back to Jerusalem. So he sends his brothers on his way, on their way, stays in Galilee for a little while, and then heads up to Jerusalem in secret so as not to attract attention to himself. All right, let's continue in verse 10. But after this, his brothers had gone up to the feast, and then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he is a good man, others said, no, he's leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but him who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, 
and in him there is no falsehood. Third example, judging by the appearance of knowledge. You get the sense in this text that Jesus was pretty well known, and people were anticipating his appearance at the feast. You also get the sense that there's some debate going on between the Jewish people. One camp is claiming he's a good man, and the other one that he's leading people astray or deceiving them. But all the people were talking about him secretly because they feared that there could be repercussions from the Jewish leaders. Whether one approved or disapproved of Jesus, the Jewish leaders did not want Jesus to be discussed at all. Verse 14 really stood out to me. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. Though Jesus avoided the grand entrance when he finally came to Jerusalem in his father's timing, he taught boldly, never shrinking back from proclaiming the truth, the full counsel of God's word. And what was the people's response? They questioned his credentials. The Jewish people knew Jesus had not studied or discipled under a prominent rabbi. We know from Acts 22 that Paul, the apostle, studied under Gamaliel, And we see the same response from the Jews in Nazareth in Matthew 13. It says, When Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished. And they said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? If they could have condemned Jesus on some false doctrine or wrong understanding of the scripture, they absolutely would have. But since they could not, they attacked Jesus' credentials. Jesus didn't point to his credentials, though, to justify himself. He pointed to God's word. It says right here in verse 16, My doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. Jesus challenged his listeners to judge him based on his doctrine, on his teaching, and whether it aligned with what God's word says. If the Jews listened carefully to the teaching of Jesus, they would have known that it was all rooted in Old Testament scripture. Also, Jesus was an eloquent and gifted teacher, but he was not self-taught. Jesus never claimed to be self-taught. He claimed to be God-taught, inviting his listeners to examine his teachings according to God's word. So how do we judge righteously and not by appearances whether the word of God is being taught faithfully, regardless of whether someone has a seminary degree or not? Jesus gives us two measures of a true teacher here in verses 17 and 18. He says, If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. First, does the teaching come from God? That is, is it according to the revealed word of God? This means we must know God's word incredibly well if we are to judge people against it. Second, do they give glory to God? Jesus is saying you can trust a teacher by whether or not their teaching agrees with God's word and whether they are teaching for their own glory or whether they are giving glory to God. All right, let's finish with this text. Verse 19, Has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered him, You have a demon. Who's trying to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. 
Jesus is making a bold claim here at the end of this dialogue. He is claiming that he is absolutely sinless and true and always seeking to glorify God. In contrast, Jesus is pointing out that the Jewish leaders did not keep the law of God. They had the law of God. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of them kept it perfectly. Jesus follows this thought up with, I am sinless and none of you keeps the law. Why then do you seek to kill me? You are the guilty ones under the law, not I. And what was the Jewish people's response? Verse 20, you have a demon who is seeking to kill you. The people didn't know that the rulers wanted to kill Jesus because he had healed a man on the Sabbath. They thought Jesus was crazy or perhaps paranoid. And this is how Jesus answers them. I did one work and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a whole man's body well? You see what Jesus is saying is that it was permitted, even commanded, to do a negative work on the Sabbath, such as cutting away the flesh and circumcision. And since that is true, it was even more right to make a man completely well on the Sabbath as Jesus did. As the commentator John Trapp eloquently paraphrased Jesus' words, if you may wound a man on the Sabbath day, may not I heal one? So what is the TLDL? You all know what a TLDR is, right? Too long, didn't read. This is the TLDL, too long, didn't listen. And so now let us sum up. In this text, we see three examples of how not to judge teachers by God's word. The first is the appearance of righteousness, second by the appearance of fame, and the third by the appearance of knowledge. And instead, we should judge them by whether or not they honor Jesus over themselves, whether they are being faithful to Scripture, or are they adding or taking away from God's word, and whether they live a life that is glorifying to God. So I exhort you all, do the work of a good Berean. Acts 17.11 says, Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica, they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. The more you know the scriptures, the more you will grow in knowledge and understanding of whether or not a teaching is true to God's word. So read your Bible daily. Meditate on its meaning. Secondly, pray for wisdom and discernment. In James 1, verse 5, it says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. And lastly, do not be troubled, but be at peace. Jesus leaves us with these words of encouragement in John 16, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus is telling us these things in order that we may have peace. So remember, church family, Jesus is our sovereign Lord and Savior. He sits at the right hand of the Father. By the words of his mouth, the heavens and earth were made all-powerful, creator of every atom and molecule. In him, all things hold together. The depths of the riches of his wisdom and knowledge is unfathomable. He's the author of all history and of all events yet to come. He makes known the end from the beginning and the beginning from the end. He's the author and finisher of our faith. His vast love for us is shown through Jesus' perfect life and death on the cross in order to redeem us from our sins. He is always with us. His spirit lives in us. Where can we go from his spirit or where can we flee from his presence? If we ascend to heaven, you are there. If we make our bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If we take the wings of the dawn, if we dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead us and your right hand will lay a hold of us always.
church family, in this life we will have tribulation. Yes, and the world will hate us. Jesus exhorts us to watch out, test the spirit so as not to be led astray, but also rest. Yes, we are still wandering through the wilderness, living in temporary shelters, but rest in the knowledge and truth that we worship the king, the ruler of heaven and earth, the savior of the world, so we can rejoice and be at peace. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for your word and that's active and living and still relevant today as it was back then. I just thank you for your grace and your goodness, Lord, that you show over and over again through Jesus' teachings and through his life and through his death. Just pray for this team in Honduras today, Lord, that you meet them and bless them through the good work of serving you and serving these kids. And just fill us with that same encouragement this week, Father. Fill us with your spirit so that we can go out and be a blessing to our neighbors and to our loved ones and to our family. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Oh. Uh-huh. 
Come on, my soul. Oh, don't you get sorry? Lift up your song. Cause you got a lion inside of love songs. Get up and praise the Lord. Oh, come on, my soul. Oh, don't you get sorry? Lift up your song. Cause you got a lion inside of love songs. Get up and praise the Lord. Oh, come on, my soul. Oh, don't you get shy on me? Lift up your song. Cause you got a lion inside of your songs. Get up and praise the doing announcements at the end. Oh my gosh. Uh, well, uh, Christ Point, thank you so much for being here this morning. Um, uh, it was a great word from Russ, but uh, we'll see y'all next week at uh, 1030. So uh, go have a blessed week.